Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, December 15th. Tis the season to be jolly. Tis also the season to try to avoid government shutdowns. Last night, the Senate approved just a one-week stopgap measure that'll keep the whole federal government running only through next Friday while they try to hash out a longer-term bill for the rest of the fiscal year. Now, it's usually Republicans who use the threat of a government shutdown to try to get their way, and they sometimes actually go through with one. Maybe you remember the partial government shutdown from December 2018 into January 2019. Then-President Donald Trump didn't want a budget agreement unless it included funding for a Mexican border wall. Remember that? Ultimately, he didn't get it. 800,000 federal workers got furloughed, though, for a month while the shutdown was on. Another one in 2013 was over Republicans' desire to delay the implementation of Obamacare. This year, the budget standoff comes amid the current wave of inflation, of course, and as Republicans are about to take control of the House, meaning potentially very different kinds of budget priorities next year. So here's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Democrats' immediate budgetary goals. Nobody's going to get everything they want, but the final product will include wins everyone can get behind, including passing the Electoral Count Act, emergency aid for Ukraine, and funding for our kids, our veterans, our small businesses, and our military families. So Chuck Schumer there, and here's the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, on why he hasn't gotten to yes. They want to raise the spending, bring more inflation, create more wokeism in the legislation they want to pass through it, and not even give members an opportunity to read it or see it. Kevin McCarthy. What they did agree to overwhelmingly yesterday for the full fiscal year was a big increase in military spending, and the final bill came out even higher than we talked about a couple of days ago, $858 billion for the year. I'm seeing that as $85 billion more than President Biden asked for. So we'll talk about the content and politics of the stopgap bill and a possible government shutdown a week from today. But we'll also take this opportunity with the federal budget in the news like this to take a closer look at where our federal tax dollars actually go. What is the federal budget? So joining us now are New York Times correspondent Emily Cochran, who has covered Congress since late 2018, focusing on the annual debate over government funding and economic legislation, and Eric Toder, Institute Fellow at the Tax Policy Center, which studies taxation issues as a joint project of the Brookings Institution and the Urban Institute. So Emily, welcome back, and Eric, welcome to WNYC. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Emily, I guess you started on this beat late 2018 for the Times, right as that last government shutdown involving Build That Wall and other things was taking shape. Can you remind us of why it came to closing certain agencies and furloughing uh, 800,000 is the number I've seen federal workers? You know, what better way to learn about uh, how the government keeps itself funded than starting two months before a shutdown? Um, <laughs> the the 
the crux of the, the issue is that in the Senate, as long as that filibuster remains in place and neither party has a supermajority, you do need both parties to get on board. And Democrats in the Senate were not willing to let uh, let the government, you know, let them clear that filibuster you know, while the president and, and more hardline Republicans were making these demands about building the wall and, and shoring up border security, something they are generally opposed to, but also keeping keeping funding levels much lower for uh, sort of the, the non-defense programs, if you will, the health, the education, and and sort of the, 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 the domestic programs that they prize. So the standoff just lasted until the new Congress when House Democrats, Speaker Nancy Pelosi took over and were able to to broker a, a different deal. Eric, can you give us some basics on the pure size of the federal government's budget and how it has changed during the pandemic era? I know this is a, an issue for the Republicans, although they voted for a lot of the pandemic spending too. Can you give us a basic top line from just before the pandemic and what the most recent total budget is, more or less? Well, I mean, this is just from CBO's May 22 projections. CBO, in, the Congressional in, Budget Office. Congressional Budget Office. In 2021, federal spending was 30.5% of gross domestic product. That's way higher than it's been for many years. Um, in 2023, it will be down to about 22%. So there was a very big surge of spending during the uh, pandemic because of both the 2020 legislation, March 2020, that, uh, that Congress passed, and then the, uh, the uh, first bill that was passed under the, the Biden administration shortly uh, after he took office. Many of those programs were temporary, and um, they're not going to continue. So that was a that was a a big surge, a very big surge with the stats that you used in the percentage of the total U.S. economy that was federal government spending. How about in pure trillions of dollars, just so people have that number? Emily, maybe, you know. Yes, it was about four trillion when President Trump was still in office. And then. As listeners may remember, uh, the Democrats passed their $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan very soon after President Biden took office. And then since then, we saw a passage of uh, the infrastructure law and the Democrats' uh, climate tax and health care bill. So all of those have really added on um, to, to the spending we've seen the federal government approve. So now, Eric, I'm looking at some charts on your Tax Policy Center website, and I see the first big categories are mandatory spending and discretionary spending. 62% called mandatory, 30%, only half as much, called discretionary, and then 8% goes toward paying off the federal debt. This might get a little wonky for people, but I think it's actually really interesting. What's the difference between mandatory and discretionary spending? Isn't it all discretionary if Congress decides not to fund something? Uh, yes, you're, you're right. And at some level, it's all discretionary. But what mandatory refers to are these programs that are determined by formulas that are baked into the cake, where Congress does not legislate those uh, every year. So the mandatory um, programs continue if Congress takes no action. The discretionary programs have to be funded annually. So the mandatory things are, are things like Social Security benefits, Medicare benefits, Medicaid. Those are the three largest 
uh, categories of mandatory spending. And so there's a formula that Congress doesn't have to act on um, year by year to that, that says how much goes to uh, people for Social Security and Medicare and some other things. And Emily, wasn't that mandatory versus discretionary thing? The controversy that Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida generated this campaign season when he proposed Congress should have to reauthorize Medicare and Social Security every five years? Yes, that that was part of the debate. And I mean, there are certainly I think that's certainly part of the reason Democrats want to act on the spending this year before control of the House goes to Republicans in early January, because they are going to have to negotiate with people who either want to reform those programs or or pull them back because they're concerned about how much money is being spent each year. And they would rather get one last funding bill through before they have to have that that debate. Derek? The Republicans have two weapons they can use when they gain control of the House. Uh, one, they can um, refuse to appropriate money because so so they can cut discretionary spending um, at will if they want to. Now, they probably don't want to, actually, but they talk a lot about that. The other weapon they have, uh, which will come into play later in 2023, is they could refuse to raise the debt ceiling which is essentially a nuclear bomb. If they don't raise the debt ceiling, uh, they can crash the entire economy. Uh, to Eric's point, I think also, you know, you, you've heard a lot of the, the House Republicans that are currently there and, and set to remain, as well as the incoming members, just talk a, a lot about how they feel the size of the federal government is too big. So addition to additional programs, I think you'll see them really push to pull back you know, how many workers, you know, the, si- the size of these agencies and also just sort of the scope of, of agencies they just have clashed with, particularly over the pandemic. I mean, we've heard them criticize Dr. Fauci and, and the, the health agencies over and over again. I think you can see them, you know, it's unlikely we see another round of uh, emergency pandemic aid in this package because of their resistance. So pulling back some of that spending, pulling back the scope of some education programs. I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of the domestic programs that you see Democrats really push for, um, and, and that's I think where you're going to see see a conflict over you know how the federal government continues to spend its money and fund itself. Quite frankly, so each year Congress has control only over thirty percent of the federal budget. That's this, the discretionary budget, and Emily, that includes the defense budget. And here, Congress just passed, with the Senate approving it last night, this $858 billion behemoth, $85 billion more than Biden asked for. What are the outlines of that, and what did Congress itself pile on to the top of the cake? So I think it, we're, we're still waiting for the final details of the overall funding package, but I think the expectation is that it's around that $858 billion number to make sure that after authorizing that much money, they actually approve sending, you know, spending that much money as well. And I think on top of that, we expect to see uh, another round of aid to Ukraine uh, in its war against Russia, especially because you've heard uh, House Republicans talk about pulling back some of that assistance. Uh, I think there's a there's an urgency among Democrats and certainly some Senate Republicans to make sure 
you know, the American government is still sending that assistance. I mean, it, it's certainly a, a massive uh, budget. That is one of the reasons we haven't seen a funding agreement yet, because the defense number was set so high and Democrats are really pushing against resistance from Republicans to match the same increase for domestic programs as well. Huh. So that means the Pentagon as a share of government spending might be going up in the current fiscal year. Eric, do you happen to know how the Pentagon budget has changed over time as a percentage of where our tax dollars go? Does it tend to be higher in wartime, lower in peacetime, anything like that? Well, you know, I'm an old guy. I grew up in in, um, the 1950s when the defense budget was about 10% of the economy. It was really huge. It's now down to three, three or four oh, percent. Really? So for a long time, um, you know, it stayed up during the Vietnam War. After the Vietnam War, it started trending down. Reagan pushed it up a bit, um, but then with the end of the Cold War, it, it came down uh, quite a bit. So in historical terms, it's not that high. It's been fairly stable for for a while. Again, it has its its ups and downs. It's going up a bit now because of. Ukraine, I think, primarily, but uh, it's, uh, you know, a very big chunk of what we spend. We spend a lot relative to what other countries spend, but in sort of long-term historical terms, going back to the Cold War, it's, it's come down quite a bit. Here is Melissa calling from Mercer County in New Jersey, where uh, the voting machines didn't work so well on Election Day, as I recall. Melissa, you're on WNYC. Yeah. Hi. Hi there. Uh, yeah, no, the voting machines didn't work so well, and I figured that out from listening to your show, actually. Um, but fossil fuel subsidies, I also, you know, fuel prices were a big deal a couple of months, well, a couple weeks ago, um, trying to get those down so that Biden uh, would have a stronger leg with uh, the midterms, I guess. But fossil fuel subsidies are fueling climate change, no? Um, there's a weird relationship with those, and I'm wondering what they see in the budget for um, for that, for fossil fuel subsidies. Emily, do you happen to have that? I don't think we've seen it yet, but I think it's fair to say that uh, that because you need Republican support in the Senate, even some of these more moderate Republicans, you're not going to see you're not going to see sort of the climate change provisions uh, that Democrats would have championed. I think that that legislation that we saw passed earlier this year, the climate tax health care bill, that is probably the most that Congress will do this year to address um, climate change. I mean, a, a permitting bill that Joe Manchin pushed for that some Democrats wanted to ease sort of the, the construction of transmission lines and, and ease this transition to these, you know, cleaner sources of energy that failed yesterday because it didn't get enough Republican support. So I think it's going to be a lot. Um, you know, when we do see this budget, I don't think we'll see substantial changes just because Republicans and Democrats remain at such at odds over this issue. Interesting. Melissa, thank you for your call. And Eric, um, Melissa asked about one particular line item, fuel subsidies. And so to take a big step back from that and look at the big picture, I guess the next way to look at where our tax dollars go is by content of the spending. The TurboTax website, I don't know how authoritative they are, um, except on how to minimize your taxes, but the TurboTax website says the biggest items are roughly 20% of the budget goes to national security, including the Pentagon. 
20% to Social Security and 20% they spend on health care. Uh, but TurboTax maybe isn't rigorous academic. So would you say that's about right? 20% of the budget goes to the Pentagon and other things labeled national security, 20% to Social Security and 20% on health care? Yeah, I'd say defense looks like it's more on the order of 15%. Social Security is a little over 20, 22%, and health care maybe 23, 24. So it's it's roughly in that ballpark. Those so are certainly the three, three big uh-huh. items. So whoever once said the U.S. is like an insurance company with an army, that's not so far off? I think so that's a off. pretty accurate description of the federal government. Yeah. And then what are, what are some of the other um, items that might be less than that 20%. Emily, if you happen to know some of the other big ones, like, you know, the old 1990s debate over funding public broadcasting at all, that was a tiny, tiny percent, uh, you know, way under 1% that made headlines because it was a culture war issue. Same with the arts budget overall, um, which, you know, is a tiny, tiny percent of the federal budget, but it it makes for good culture war fodder, so sometimes it comes up. Um, but what are they really fighting over? I mean, I think at this point, it you know, they, they have said they have an overall agreement on how to divide between defense and non-defense. Those are the two phrases they sort of throw around on Capitol Hill. But I think part of it is just starting to hammer out the details and wrestling over individual programs and how you divide up this, what we expect to be a roughly $1.7 trillion bill. I mean, it, we, we, won't, we won't have the final number yet, but we expect it to come, come close to that. I, and I think one of the things that could hold this up in the final process is that it is this is the last must-pass bill, not just of the year, but of this Congress. So several lawmakers, from those who are retiring to those who just got here and are looking for one more legislative win, are eyeing this package and trying to use it as a vehicle to carry all these other priorities that may not deal with spending, but could be incorporated into this bill. Mm. And, and that is something that could gum up the works as they, as they move ahead. For example, I think you know, people should be familiar with the overhaul of the Electoral Count Act. This is this bipartisan bill to sort of update the statute that was at the heart of the effort to overturn, unsuccessfully overturn the 2020 election. We expect that bipartisan measure to be part of this massive omnibus spending package, not because it necessarily deals with keeping the government open, but because there's a limited amount of floor time. And this is this is the must-pass vehicle that could carry all these other priorities. So I think that's something to look out for um, as well. You know, what additional things sort of ride along, you know, to use an expression up here, you know, it's the last train leaving the station and yeah. everyone wants to get on board. In this so. Congress. I guess I would add, that these additional things are different in the budget thing, uh, Matt. Strictly budget matters. The Democrats could, having control of both houses in the White House, push through a budget measure without the Republicans now. But they can't enact these unrelated uh, items, which they can't do that through reconciliation. And they would need to have 60 votes because of the filibuster. Martin in New City. You're on WNYC. Hi, Martin. Earlier, your guest said something about um, the Republicans failed to raise the debt ceiling. 
Uh, they could really crash the economy. And I'm just curious, Joe, from the left and the right, at what point does some little bit of fiscal responsibility come into play? I mean, the GDP to debt ratio keeps going up. It never really goes down. I mean, when's the last time we lowered the debt ceiling? Martin, well, great, great question. And let me let me add one layer to that question uh, to make it super clear for our listeners. Again, looking at your tax policy center chart, 8% of the federal budget goes to pay interest on the federal debt, 8%. Now, that doesn't sound like such a large percentage, perhaps, but people always say, oh, the national debt and all these annual deficits, and Martin is raising the concerns that he's raising. So is 8% a lot or not so much? It's Well, I think you have to consider in the context that it's going up because interest rates are rising, and as the debt grows, that interest on the debt figure right, uh, goes up. It's been unusually lower than it might have been because we had so such low interest rates for many years, but that era may be coming to an end. So that is a, that is a matter of concern. I think I would make the more general point is that while we're having these uh, intense debates about if line items in the discretionary budget, the, the real action in terms of worrying about what's happening to budget deficits has to do with the mandatory mandatory programs and revenues. And without either slowing the growth of mandatory programs or increasing revenues, you're not really going to be able to get a, a handle on the uh, on the budget situation. Which is to say largely Social Security and Medicare, they get funded by those particular lines uh, on the, the payroll tax that people pay. There's a line for Medicare, there's a line for Social Security, but it doesn't match what the outlay is, especially as the population is aging. Is that what you're saying? That's right. But I wouldn't focus so much on the particular revenue sources that are dedicated. Uh, the hospital tax for Medicare only only covers the hospital insurance part. It doesn't cover the pharmaceuticals. It doesn't cover Part B, which is the doctor's. Those those are funded through general revenues. And, and Emily, this is this is something that they like to kick down the road uh, every year. That's why when Rick Scott raised it, it was so explosive because really neither party wants to be against Social Security or against Medicare, but there is this increasing gap over time. Is there a Democrat way to deal with it? I think this is just an issue where the the politics of the issue, the, the the politics of what it looks like to raise the limit on how much the the country can continue to borrow, even though it's a common spending that both parties have already approved. You know, the politics of as as was already said, raising taxes and and you know appearing to cut or, or social security and Medicare are just too toxic. And I mean, certainly this this in this lame duck session. Right, this this period between the election and the new Congress, we saw Democrats in particular really push their leadership to try to act on the debt limit now before it becomes divided government and House Republicans take over. But there just wasn't, quite frankly, the political will or the time to uh, to, to act on it now. Um, you know, certainly I've spoken to people in both parties who have privately acknowledged, yeah, this is something we should probably do. But, you know, in the end of the year crush, when there are so many other unfinished business and so many other unfinished bills, this sort of got left to next year. Yeah. So. 
couple of tweets coming in reacting to our callers. One says um, uh, to the caller, Melissa, who asked about um, fossil fuel subsidies, somebody tweets, the U.S. federal budget fossil fuel subsidies tax dollar handouts are near minuscule, $25 billion, which I guess is minuscule when you're talking about a $6 trillion budget. The real federal subsidy, half a trillion, is the failure to charge coal, oil, and gas for their climate damage, hashtag carbon tax. So that's one listener's response to that. And on what we were just talking about, about the debt, listener tweets, what about discussing the overall deficit decreasing under Biden. Emily, did it decrease under Biden? I mean, that was certainly the the, ho- the hope of the climate tax and health care plan they passed earlier. You know, that was a key that was a key provision to get um, Senator Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin on board with the plan, the lone Democratic holdout. But I think it's certainly not as far as the deficit hawks would have liked to see it. And I don't think that's going to make a difference come January when we have House Republicans really pushing to down spending and Democrats in the White House and in the Senate having to negotiate a compromise um, with some of these really hardline positions. So bottom line, Emily, uh, I don't know if you do um, sports betting sites, but uh, What's the over-under on whether there's going to be a government shutdown a week from today? Uh, I do not. But uh, <laughs> I, think, I think the incentives for avoiding a shutdown and also the incentives at the end of a Congress, all of these lawmakers eager to, to you know, furnish their legacy with one last bill, one last round of funding. I think those incentives will be enough to, at the very least, avoid a shutdown. And, and certain, and certainly, I think folks on the Hill are optimistic that it will be enough to reach a full deal for the remainder of the fiscal year. Emily Cochran, New York Times correspondent, who has covered Congress since late 2018, focusing on the annual debate over government funding and economic legislation, and Eric Toder, Institute Fellow at the Tax Policy Center, which studies taxation issues as a joint project of the Brookings Institution and the Urban Institute. Thanks so much for coming on and talking federal budget with us and and really wonking out. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Thank you for having us. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.